We're going to read verses 1 through 14 together, and then we'll come back and pray. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 1 Corinthians 10, 2. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, come before you right now, and we're here for you. We're here to worship you. We're here for one another. We're here to love each other, to encourage each other. Lord, this is really what Sundays are about. They're about you, loving you with everything that we are, and loving one another, and that would be our witness to the world. But we do live in a world that is filled with idolatry, and this is not just an ancient problem. This is a problem in corporate America. This is a problem in 21st century Corona, as much as it was in ancient Israel and first century Corinth. And Lord, we know that you want our love. You want us to love you for who you are. And idols make promises that they can't deliver. Idols are essentially false gods that could never give us what you give us. And yet we are drawn prone to wander like ancient Israel. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. Here's our hearts, Lord, take and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. As we study your word, Lord, and we look at what you wrote for our instruction through Paul, this is for our benefit. And even though the stories that are told are not happy ones, they they're instructive, they're really preventative medicine for us if we would heed their lessons. And so I ask, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would speak, and that your church would have ears to hear what you have to say to us in our contemporary culture, which at some point will be a, a thing of the past. And we'll, we will enter into eternity, and we want to be wise about how we live these days, Lord. So help us. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. 1 Corinthians 10 continues the argument of avoiding idolatry, which Paul began in chapter 8, verse 1. 
Idolatry was the main downfall of ancient Israel. Idolatry has permeated mankind really from the very beginning when Satan came into the garden. He's called the God of this age. He's a false God who promises to deliver things that he cannot deliver. Yet when he draws people to himself, ultimately behind that is poison. In Romans 125, Paul argues that we will worship and serve either God or the created thing, namely idols. And the question I think that we need to ask as we read our Bibles is simply this. What draws humanity to idols? What is it about an idol that would even cause us to waste our time? Well, idols promise something that we can only truly get from God, as I mentioned in the prayer, but they, they promise it nonetheless. And if you think about what an idol is, if an idol is anything, it's a false god. And Paul will say later, it's potentially demonic, but the world promises these things. You could call them the forbidden fruit. You could call them a promise of something. And that's why people were drawn to idols. They thought, I can get something out of this that I need, some excitement, something that will fulfill a desire in me. But essentially, as I mentioned in the prayer, idols are just false gods. They're not true. They're a lie. They beckon men and women to come to them, but those who make them, Psalm 115, will become like them, lifeless and empty. And I'm sure if I were to ask you just to imagine some faces right now, some people that you know that are wandering this wilderness of this world and have embraced a life of idolatry, ultimately it cannot produce. And so in this text, Paul is going to give us examples of Israel's fall in the desert. Their major problem was indeed idols, the idols of the nations all around them, the idols that they had left behind in Egypt that they had become so used to. Those idols became a means of temptation to draw them away from God. And what first century Corinth and ancient Israel and 21st century Corona all have in common is that they still beckon us to come. They still promise us something that they can't deliver, yet we are somehow intrigued by idols. We, we can feel drawn to them. And so Paul opens the section in verse 1, chapter 10. He says, for, that's a connecting word, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, the word for connects us to the end of chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9.27, as uh, Shane preached a few weeks ago, Paul wrote these words. He says, 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and make it my body my slave, so that after I've preached to others, now Paul applying the same lesson, the same warning in chapter 10, he says, look, this could happen to me. That's why I discipline my body. That's why I make my body my slave, so that after I've preached to others, and you can imagine how many different people Paul preached to and brought to the Lord, I myself would not be what? Disqualified. Now remember the example at the end of chapter 9 is the Olympics. It's the Isthmian Games. It's races. It's athletic imagery. And to become disqualified in an athletic race is not hard to envision, right? You're in the starting blocks, you make a false start. You don't keep the rules. You, you somehow trip up another runner or you, you, you are found to be, you know, the, in the modern times, we, they found people to be juicing. They're using banned substances and, and the like. Some of you have heard stories about uh, teams that have won championships and have th had those championships revoked from them. 
because it came out later that they cheated. There's scandals in the NCAA all the time where they're finding that there's payoffs to high school players. They're trying to woo them to their school because this guy is an incredible athlete, and so they get him to come, or we find out there was a whole scandal in baseball about all these players that were on these lists that are using steroids, and then we start to wonder, were their home runs legit? Were they, you know, were they juicing, and that's why they were so good? And it brings all these question marks. Were they disqualified because of what was found out about them later? Now, I don't have to tell you that it doesn't take long for us to begin to think of recent examples of pastors and other leaders and examples in the last 2,000 years of church history where we hear about someone who is preaching to multitudes of people and then became disqualified. Disqualified in what sense, you may ask, in this sense. Maybe disqualified in the eyes of people that were watching. Remember that unbelievers are watching us run the race. Amen? And so if, they, if an unbeliever hears after you've preached to them, let's say that you've been witnessing to them at work, say you've been a witness to somebody in your family, and all of a sudden you fall in the race, it comes out that you were cheating. Well, that person who's been watching you for some time, let's just imagine for a moment that they've been seeing your witness and you've been telling them about the gospel, but then something comes out about you that you're a cheater, that you were juicing, that you manipulated the rules. All of a sudden, in their eyes, you become disqualified. And this is really what the unbelieving world is saying about the church, that I can't listen to that person because here's what I found out about them. Now, we all know this. We all know we're saved by grace, right? We all know that ultimately we're going to have feet of clay in one way or another. But if we are downright cheaters, hypocrites, phonies, then the world has every reason to disqualify us in their eyes. And in one sense, we could also say that God will potentially disqualify us. You've heard Jesus said, how can you make the salt salty again? And so there's this sense in which Paul, applying this to himself, says, look, if I were to leave the stadium without winning the prize, if I'm called to run in such a way that I might win and then all of a sudden I lose or I get disqualified and I hang my head in shame and walk out of the stadium without that wreath of flowers, without the medal, without the trophy, then I've become disqualified. And really, if you think about the idea of disqualification, the Greek word is adokimos, atakimos, and it's to be unapproved, rejected, not standing the test. Here's a good way to think about it. Falling out of the race. We don't want to fall out of the race. Israel failed to make it to the promised land because idols ultimately were being hung in front of them and they bit the forbidden fruit and they fell in the desert. And we have a race to run. Paul, you could imagine Paul here as a spiritual coach who's encouraging them after they broke out of the starting blocks, think of the Corinthian church, to run well and finish well. That's what a coach wants. Now, those of you who have played sports, you know that a coach will challenge you, right? A coach will get into your face. A coach will, you know, sometimes you'll end up hating your coach sometimes. But why? Because your coach is trying to set it up so that you're going to win the race, and they'll do everything they can to prepare you for that moment even if you have to hate them. 
because they want you to experience victory. Some of you have been watching the Final Four in basketball. You know what a grind it is, right, to make it to that final game. And have you noticed, if you're a basketball fan, here's something that I've noticed, that the teams that are in the finals are tenacious defensive teams. They play, you know, just incredible defense, smothering defense, and it takes a lot of effort to play defense, right? Any of you who have ever played any basketball, you got to work really hard to be a good defender. Well, this is what Paul is saying. He's using athletic imagery to make his point. The father of a small boy would occasionally seek into a neighbor's orchard and pluck some of the choicest fruit. He always made sure, however, that the coast was clear. One day, with his son tagging along, after carefully looking in every direction and seeing no one, he crept through the fence and he was just ready to help himself when the youngster started by crying, startled him by crying out and said, Dad, Dad, you didn't, you looked around, but you didn't look up. You forgot to see if God is watching. <laughs> Whoops, right? We're all tempted to kind of sneak the fruit, right? Hey, nobody's watching, but God is watching. And the question that we have to ask is this. How do we overcome temptation? I mean, this is a big one, right? And he says, NIV, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, and you could add sisters, that our forefathers, and Paul's speaking largely to a Gentile church, but Gentiles are grafted into Jewish roots. They were all under the cloud, our forefathers were, and they all passed through the sea. That's reading from the NIV. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. Folks, in the battle for temptation in your spiritual life, ignorance is not bliss. You want all the knowledge you can get. You want to be looking at the different angles. You want to learn from other people's examples, whether they're negative or positive. And this formula Paul introduces many times in the New Testament. And when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, it's always in an area where people are, guess what? ignorant, unaware. And so Paul says, look, I want to remind you, brethren, what our forefathers went through. The children of Israel, as they went through the desert experiences, they had divine provisions. They had the presence of Christ. They had the prefigurement of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But they failed to enter into the promised land because of one reason, idolatry. And Paul, using the ancient story, you know, you guys have heard the famous saying, the one thing that we've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. And biblical history is there for us to learn by example, to learn the lesson so we don't do the same thing. They were not satisfied, Israel, with God's wonderful provisions. They whined. They wanted to go back to Egypt, a type of the world, same as the Corinthians, and same as many Coronians. It's hard sometimes, right? The wilderness of temptation, this world that we live in, can press on us. And sometimes when we're walking with God in the desert, we, it's not easy. There's struggle and temptation. And sometimes God doesn't supply in the moments and times that we think he should. And so it's not hard to all of a sudden want to buy a ticket back to Egypt, right? The Christian life is too hard. I'm not going to make it. You see, they were all, verse 2, baptized into Moses. We'll talk about that 
in a second, in the cloud and in the sea. Now, every example that Paul gives is either from Exodus, the second book of the Bible, or Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. All right? So if when I make these references, if you want to be ready to hold your place, I'm not going to get into detail. That's the temptation of the preacher to go back to every uh, story and exegete that and get into the details. We're not going to do that, but we're going we're gonna to fly on a kind of overhead here on these stories, and I'm going to remind you what they were. So they were all baptized into Moses. What does that mean? They, in the, it says in the cloud and in the sea. If you're taking notes, write down Exodus 13, 21 and 22, and Exodus 14, 21 and 22. They were all baptized into Moses. Well, when the children of Israel left uh, Egypt, they began a trek that would take them right to the edge, edge of the Red Sea. And people who have seen the route ask questions about it. In fact, Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments movie. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments with Yul Brenner? Oh, praise the Lord. Way to go, people. It's a classic. When, when the chariots of Egypt see the people of Israel against the Red Sea, Yul Brenner famously says in the movie, well, their God's a very poor general. He's left them no way out. They're against the sea and the Egyptian army is coming. But we know what God did. And God did it for purposes of doing a miracle so that his people could pass through the sea. But he also did it to destroy the Egyptian army. Can you imagine being one of those charioteers and you see the God of Israel open the sea with water walls on each side? And by the way, the additional miracle was that they passed on dry ground. It wasn't mushy because the chariot wheels wouldn't have made it. The children of Israel would have been sloshing along. Think of all the animals and all that they were carrying. But part of the miracle was they passed on dry ground. And the water walls were there. And Moses was leading the people. And how were they baptized into Moses? Simply by this. They identified with Moses as their leader. Moses took the rod or the staff of God and God parted the Red Sea and God said through Moses, you see that Egyptian army, you're never going to see them again. You know, Ron Wyatt, who since has gone to be with the Lord, uh, did some research in this area and they have taken photographs of chariot wheels that have been, that have coral that have grown on them and they can't move them, but they've taken underground, underwater photography of chariot wheels where they believe the crossing happened. The Bible is true. And the people were passing through and they were baptizing the Moses, not in the sense of water baptism. You know, some people say, well, maybe the water of the, the, the uh, sea was sprinkling them and they were baptized. No, it's more separation from Egypt. Please hear me. Separation from Egypt, a type of the world, and identification with Moses, who's God's leader. In fact, they say that Moses, and you can bear this out in the New Testament, is a type of Christ, a redeemer, a deliverer, taking the people out of Egypt, a type of the world, out from under the bondage of Pharaoh, a type of Satan, and into the promises of God. And when the people walked through the, the sea and it had been opened up by God, they were baptized in this sense. They separated from the world and identified with God. They became God's covenant people, if you will. They entered into covenant. The cloud was not over them in this sense, sprinkling rain down. The cloud was leading them or behind them. It was protecting them from the Egyptian army. And it was, 
It was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the children of Israel experienced the presence of God and the power of God and the provision of God, just like first century Corinthian Christians have and just like 21st century Coronian Christians have. We've been called out of the world, called to Christ, tasted of the Holy Spirit, seen miracles in our lives, been born again to a living hope, been baptized, hopefully, in water at the beginning of our journey, just like Israel was baptized in the sea and by, under the cloud as they began their journey to follow God into the promises. This is what happened. God was with them. God was calling them out. God was showing them miracles. They all ate the same spiritual food. Spiritual is more the source, not the, the food itself. And they all, notice the emphasis on all, they all drank, verse 4, the same spiritual drink. Paul is speaking of the source of the food and the drink. What was the food that God supplied for them in the wilderness wanderings? It was manna. Manna literally in Hebrew means, what is it? I have a word of advice. If your mother-in-law or your wife or a family friend ever serves you something, do not say, what is it? Because you may be wearing it. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Okay. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is another pearl of wisdom. Ready? Get ready to put it in your pocket. If, if someone offers to cook for you, don't say this. Well, what are you making? All right? That's just free advice, okay? Just at some point, you're going to realize, Pastor Michael was right. I said that, and now I have a black eye. It's, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence right here. Okay, anyway. Now, the word all is emphasized so that no one will think, well, maybe the people that failed in the wilderness just simply didn't experience the provisions. Maybe they weren't baptized in quotes. Maybe they didn't eat the spiritual food or drink the spiritual drink. No, they did. They all did. If it was a million people or more, here's what we know. They all experienced the grace, the provision, the presence, and the power of God. They got no excuse. Just like we have no excuse. You see, sometimes we want to blame God for the reasons that we fell. Well, it was this or that. As Adam put it, it's the woman that you gave me. The serpent. Or the, the woman says, the serpent is the one that beguiled me. The food and drink came through spiritual means. Men, women did eat the bread of angels, but the source was God. And you remember when you read about the manna, they had to go and gather it every day, and it was like dew on the ground and so forth. God was providing. Psalm 78, 24 and 25 says, God rained down manna upon them to eat. He gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels, and God sent them food in abundance. Psalm 78, 24 and 25. For they, verse 4, were drinking from a spiritual, that's the word pneumatikos, Rock, that's Petra, which followed them. And the rock was who? The rock was Christ. Now, in the rabbinic literature, the writings of the rabbis, they had a legend that the rock from which the water gushed out literally followed them around in the wilderness wanderings. Think about it. If you're in the wilderness 
and there's really no provisions outside of the manna, would God have to give you water more than one time over 40 years? I'd say so. In fact, I think that the two water miracles, one in Exodus 17 and one in uh, the book of Numbers, are representative stories of the beginning when God supplied water and the end. I, I'll mention Ron Wyatt uh, for another moment. As some of you have looked at his, some of his archaeological discoveries. There's a huge boulder out in this area that looks like water came gushing out of it and it's actually split. And they think, you know, maybe that's the rock. I, I have no idea, but it's intriguing nonetheless. But the legend said the rock that supplied the water. Now, look, you would need a drinking fountain wherever you went, right? You're in the desert. So the implication, this is my view, is that God continually provided water for them, just like he continually provided manna for them. He was always supplying, always sustaining. But there were times when, for whatever reason, in his providence, he would withhold for a little bit, kind of like our lives. Sometimes things get a little lean and hard and and how do you handle those times? God's been so good to you for so long, but you come upon a lean time for a little bit, and what do we do? Well, I'd like to say that we're great pillars of faith, right? Oh, yeah, Lord, I just trust you. I don't have a job right now, but it's going to be okay because you've provided all these years. No, most of us are more like this. That's a baby. Anyway, we've done that with a few friends over the years just to laugh at each other. We can be very whiny. You see, the rock that was with them was Christ. Remember, Christ is the eternal God. Christ was in the wilderness wanderings with his people, supplying what they needed. Yet we know how many times they complained and failed. The first time that God supplied the waters in Exodus 17, the people were whining and grumbling. They complained against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? And so Moses was instructed to what? He struck the rock. And God said, I will position myself upon the rock or near the rock and you're to strike it. And that became a picture of when Christ was crucified on the cross, the living waters of salvation flowed out and the water came out from the rock. Talk about a miracle. Can you imagine? Just think about the dynamics. You have a stick and you hit a rock, a boulder. Okay. <laughs> and water begins to flow to satisfy the thirst of a million people. That's a flow of water. You say, can God bring water out of a rock? Yes. He brought water out of nothing. I think he can do it. And so the people drank. You ever been there before? Oh, God, celebrate. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The water, the water, the water, the water. A couple days later, where's the water? Why do we have to? You brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? There's no hope. Right? Oh, can we relate to the Israelites? Oh, do we sometimes see it in our children? And then the person that we stare at, stare at in the mirror every morning. <laughs> well, at the end of the wilderness wanderings in Numbers chapter 20, God did it again. The people were whining and Moses, <laughs> Moses had, can you imagine? Moses needed a counselor, man. <laughs> 
all these whiners, you mothers can understand what this is like, right? Moses was on the edge, <laughs> but he was the most humble man on the planet. And so he went to the Lord, and the Lord said, this time I just want you to speak to the rock. See, Jesus was only struck one time, and the living waters flowed. But Moses got upset, and he said, Okay, you rebels, you want water? You ever been there in the car with your children? You rebels! <laughs> right? You want jack-in-the-box? All right! But this is the last meal you're ever going to have. <laughs> I'll get you one of those tacos. Right? So, so Moses said, You rebels! And he hit the rock a couple of times. And water flowed to the people. And God said, Moses, come into my office. What did I do? What did I do? You think being called into the principal's office is a little scary? Right? So, you did not treat me as holy before the people. I told you to speak to the rock. What do you think Moses had to speak to the rock? It doesn't say in the Bible. Did he have to say something like this? Water, come forth. Or, Mr. Rock, would you be so kind? I don't know what he had to say. But you know, the Bible paints this picture that after Jesus was struck once, Exodus 17, now the way we get saved is what? We speak to the rock. And what do we say? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call upon him, he will hear you. And God in the Old Testament is depicted as the rock of our salvation. And Jesus is the rock. He is God. And so the water flowed. The woman at the well meets Jesus. Jesus meets her more specifically. And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself? And his sons and his cattle. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Did the woman at the well meet the Savior that day? Yes. In fact, the Messiah said to the woman at the well, and this may be the first time he ever said this to someone, I whom you're talking to, am he. I am the Messiah. And she said, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Oh, yes. You know what he gives? Living water. And the children of Israel are a prefigurement, a foreshadowing of the reality that Christ would give this living water. But they tested God, the writer of the, uh, Psalm 95, uh, echoed by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, speaks of rebellion. This is Psalm 95, 8. As in the day of Massa, speaks of testing in the wilderness. This is the recorded events when the children of Israel complained and hardened their hearts. And the, the readers of Hebrews are told, don't harden your hearts like they did. Because the, the consequences were disastrous. In verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, Nevertheless, this is a strong adversative. With most of them, that is the children of Israel, God was not well pleased. For they, Israel, was laid, were laid low in the wilderness. 
It's a bit of an understatement with most of them. God was not well pleased because you all know of those 20 years old and older, how many of them made it into the promised land? Uh, You can count it on one hand. Two. Do you know that not even Moses made it in? God said, because you didn't treat me holy in that water miracle, you're not going into the promised land either. Some people say, wow, that's harsh. That's tough. But Moses ruined a prophetic picture that God was trying to paint. The rock was struck once. Now all you have to do is speak to the rock. And God said to Moses, you didn't treat me as holy. You misrepresented me in front of the people, and you're not going into the promised land. And it was Joshua, whose Hebrew uh, name in Greek is Jesus, or you could say Yeshua would lead them into the promised land. And their bodies, literally you could render the end of verse 5, were strewn all over the wilderness. This doesn't mean they simply died in the wilderness. This is not speaking just simply of a natural death. It was God's sentence to that wilderness generation that none of them, save Joshua and Caleb, would make it in. And some people say, oh, that's the Old Testament. That's the, the God of wrath. And that's why I don't read those books. Well, I've got news for you. <laughs> the same God that did that is the same God of the New Testament and the same God that you follow today. Now, he has satisfied his holiness and justice in the cross and the resurrection. But that same Christ was there with them in the wilderness. And that same Christ is to be treated as holy. These are history lessons. And what we should be asking is, what caused Israel to fall, God's chosen people? Why did they lose in the desert? And you may add something like this. Why are so many of my Christian friends losing? If I were to ask you to imagine five faces right now of people who you know have made a Christian profession, a profession of faith, someone you knew over your lifetime, someone that you know today at work. Some of you might say, okay, I can picture five faces right now of people who've made a Christian profession, and I can say they're walking with the Lord. Things are good. But how many of you could picture five faces right now, and you would say something like this, I have no idea where that person is even at with the Lord? Think about it for a second. Just raise up your hand. Can How many of you would say the five faces you pictured are not doing well? Just raise up your hand. Okay, some of you. How many of you have said, the five faces I pictured well are really walking strong with the Lord? Raise up your hand. How many of you don't want to raise your hand no matter what I ask you? (laughs) Okay, we're not going to do that at second service. Anyway, anyway, that's (laughs) totally failed. Let's just move on. Now, Maybe your response is, I'm just thinking so deeply, Pastor Michael. Now, these things happened as examples for us. They're preventative examples. That we should not crave evil things, destructive, wicked, injurious, bad, troublesome things as they also craved. The word crave means to set your heart upon something to long, usually for what is forbidden. Five things chronicled here in the text about what they did and what we shouldn't do. They craved evil things. 
I'm going to try to give you a positive spin. Every time I give you a negative example, I'm going to tell you what I think the positive remedy is. They craved evil things. We're not to crave evil things as they also craved. Now, in Numbers 11, 33 and 34, I think scholars would say this is where the story lies. They, the children of Israel were whining about the manna, <clears throat> and they said, we want meat. They started some clubs, we want meat clubs. Where's the beef clubs? They were holding signs in the wilderness. And so while the meat was still between their teeth, Numbers 11:33, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which that's Hebrew, which means graves of gluttony or graves of craving, Numbers 11:34, because they buried the people who had been greedy or they buried the cravers. This was a, the name of an ancient cemetery. It was called the Craver's Graveyard, literally. And the people, we want the meat, we want the meat. And they got the meat, and while it was, before they could even get toothpicks, shabam. <laughs> now, here's the question. Why do we crave evil things? I think it's just something in our humanity, right? We see a bench that says wet paint, and we go, is it really wet? I don't know. <laughs> is there, is there, why do we do that? Why do our children do that? I don't know, but sometimes we, we long for what's forbidden. We think, oh, it's got to be forbidden because it's good. And so we long for the things that we shouldn't lust after. Now, what's the remedy? Well, we should crave, we should have a deep hunger for God. But they craved evil things and God <laughs> dealt strongly with them. We're not to do that. Number two, example, verse seven, don't be idolaters. That's what the whole section's been about. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Don't be idolaters. Make God your true desire. I was listening to a pastor over the, somebody sent me a podcast and he was talking to his daughter and he said, hey, honey, imagine if for your birthday, he's, and he's talking about the modern church, and he goes, imagine for your birthday that I said to you, hey, we're going to have a party in the backyard for you and we're going to invite your friends and we'll have, you know, we'll have some bread and water, but they're going to be here to celebrate you. How many of your friends at school do you think would come to a party where we're we did it in the backyard. You know, we had some bread and water, but they're here to celebrate you and your birthday. How many of your friends would come? And she said, a couple. And he goes, honey, what if I rented Dave and Buster's? And, and it was free food for everybody, and I got extra game tokens, and it was we made a day of it, and they could all just come and play the games and eat the food. How many people would come to your party if I rented Dave and Buster's? And she said, the whole school would come, Dad. And he said, you know what? A lot of us who go to church, we won't come just for God. We'll come if Dave and Buster's is going on. If we like this and like that. Are they going to have that today? Oh, if they're going to have that today, then yeah. Free tokens, free food. Whenever we have food at church, more people come. Come on, come on. Let me hear an amen to a negative rebuke. Praise the Lord. There's donuts every Sunday. You should come. 
right? They have donuts. I'll buy you a donut out there. Anyway, you see, do you get the point? Oftentimes in the modern church, people come not for God, but for everything else. Well, if I like the music and the sermon's pretty good. And, and God's saying, no, I want you to come for me. I'll supply that stuff. But you should come and worship for me. Make God, how do you overcome idolatry? Make God your desire. Come to church for God. Come to worship him in spirit and in truth. Here's the story. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, the ten big ones. And he goes up and the, there's the fire on the mountain. And the people, as they were prone to do, they, they went, well, uh, we don't know what's happened to Moses. It's been a couple of hours. Right? And so, Aaron, make a God for us. And the people gave Aaron their gold, and Aaron fashioned it into a golden calf. And the people were dancing around the golden calf. And you know what they said? This is our God who led us out of Egypt. And they celebrated the golden calf. By the way, this is what they had learned in Egypt. A golden calf was one of the gods of Egypt. And so it was hard to get Egypt out of the people. They were brand new to all of this, understandable, right, in one sense. And so they, they had Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, make a god. They're dancing around it. And the, the euphemism in Hebrew is with, when they danced around and they played, here's what happened. In ancient uh, um, idolatry and things around false gods and goddesses, it normally debauched into sexual immorality. In fact, it was a form of worshiping these gods and goddesses was sexual immorality. And I won't say any more, but gross sexual immorality. So that's the euphemism there in Hebrew, that they were doing that. And Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. You shall have, let's see, what's the first one again? You, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no gods before me. Ever seen Ray Comfort? He goes to a local mall, and he says to a teenager with a microphone, how many of the Ten Commandments can you name? Go. And they go. You shall not. You should not. You you should 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 not. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. And name ten beers right now. Coors, Budweiser. Man, some deep knowledge going on at those malls. Anyway, so, so Moses is getting the top ten. So God says, <laughs> this is classic. God says, uh, Moses, your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt have really defiled themselves. Any parents, can you relate to this? Your, your kid, that's your son. It's not my son. It's yours. So Moses heads down the mountain with the top ten, right? And he sees the people down there. He's like, no way. Golden calf, sexual immorality, stuff like that. And he takes the commandments. And remember what he did? He throws them down, smashes them to the ground, comes up to his brother and said, what have the people done to you? What's going on? And in a classic response by the first high priest of Israel, he said, well, they gave me the gold and I threw it all into the fire and poof, out popped this calf. I don't know where it came from. I don't know who broke the lamp. 
Oh my goodness, is the Bible relevant or not? And they ended up burning the calf. They put the powder of the calf into the water, and Moses made the people drink it. You want some soap for that dirty mouth of yours? Here you go. <laughs> you want to smoke? Okay, here's a pack of camels. <laughs> some of your parents gave you those lessons, right? You want a golden calf? You think that they're going to give you the provision that you need? Go ahead and drink it. Drink the water. Don't drink the water. Montezuma's Revenge is the first case of it. Anyway. Ugly. Second example. Don't be like that. Don't do that. Example number three. Don't act immorally, verse 8, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. When uh, Balak was trying to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel, Numbers 25, he couldn't do it. God had stopped him every time. But then an idea was hatched, and it's implied in the text that the way that you get Israel to be cursed is get them involved in sexual immorality. And so the daughters of Moab, they joined themselves with the daughters of Moab. They began to bow before their gods. This is Numbers 25.2. It you know, uh, it got ugly again into sexual immorality. And it says 23,000 of them fell in one day. There's a little number discrepancy uh, from 24 to 23,000. Some would say it means uh, in one day 24,000 to include others who died later. 23,000 killed in one day and 24,000 includes others who died later due to the plague. Some say Paul's combining Exodus 32 story with 3,000 dying with the 24,000. I'll leave that to your own study, but let, let's just put it this way. <clears throat> Lots of people died. And it, once again, it was idolatry in the book of Numbers. That's number three. Number four, nor let us test or try the Lord. See the Lord there? That's Christos. That's the name of Christ, Messiah, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Now, some of you remember this story from Numbers 21. The people of Israel spoke against God and against Moses, Numbers uh, 21.5. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this miserable bread, this miserable food. And God said, oh, you do? Okay, here come the snakes. And snakes came up, fiery serpents, Numbers 21.6, among the people. They bit the people, and many of Israel died. And the people said, oh, we've sinned. Intercede. Go to the Lord. And remember what the Lord asked Moses to do to remedy this? He said, make a bronze serpent. Raise it up in the wilderness. And anyone who's bit by a serpent, if they just look to the bronze serpent, they'll be saved. And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Somehow that became a symbol of Christ. You just must look to him, and the bite of the serpent will not destroy you. Well, how do we avoid trying or testing the Lord? We put our faith in him. How do we avoid all of these things like, Acting immorally, we desire purity. 
we surround ourselves with things that are good and wholesome and lovely and true. Let's not test the Lord. And, and the fifth one is let's not grumble, final example, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Israel's fifth problem was complaining. We know that this is not a problem in our own circle, so we'll just move on, because I'm sure. Here's, here's, the, here's the remedy to complaining. Stop it. <laughs> Start blessing. Start thanking God. You, you have to ask God sometimes just to simply change your attitude. Because, man, when we start on that complaining role, yeah, and something else. Have you been with a group of people and, you know, you just sat together and complained for two hours about everything. And, yeah, and another thing. Oh, yeah, and that, yeah, and her and him and, oh, and the freeway, yeah, the, oh, yeah. It's a complain fest. And when we complain, you know what we're saying to God? Uh, we don't really like our lives because we got it so rough here in Southern California. It's tough. I know some of our problems are real, but you get it. Our heart's desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate daily. If you start blessing instead of complaining, if you start serving instead of whining, you might find that your habits will change. One's desires are shaped and transformed by his or her daily habits. You want to change your diet? You have to have a meal plan. You want to get in shape? You've got to go to the gym. There's no shortcuts. You want to have a change in your heart and life, you got to start taking more of the Word of God in than you are the other garbage. Amen? That's just the truth of the matter. And so they grumbled. They complained against God. And God dealt with them severely as well. They whined over and over again. We usually complain when we're not getting our way. Now, these things happen to them as an example. They were written for our instruction, our admonition, our training, our maturing, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That simply means the culmination of the times. All this history that we can look back at. Let's learn from history, specifically biblical history. These things were written for our instruction. Let's learn. Let's mature. The message is meant for our maturing. Verse 12. Therefore, and you can say these are solutions. Number one, let's learn. Let's be instructed by the stories. Number two, let's take heed. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed. Be careful, lest he fall. The moment that you think you can't fall, look out. The moment that you say, I don't think it'll happen to me, watch out. I think Paul's implying it could happen to me, 927. And so it could happen to anyone don't be careless and don't be overconfident. And then finally, verse 13. You see, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he'll do what? He'll provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Just quickly, three things. Temptation is common to everybody. Whenever you're tempted, you are not alone. Other people deal with those temptations. Ancient Israel dealt with those temptations. First century uh, Corinthians dealt with those temptations, and so do your friends and family. It's common to all. It's not unique to you, although you can feel alone when you're being overwhelmed. Second, 
God is faithful. It speaks of his covenant loyalty. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He'll be there for you. He'll provide what you need. And what he does is he provides a way of escape. Please hear this. Every single temptation that you face in life, every single time you face a temptation, God in every single instance will provide a way of escape every single time. You know what you have to do, though? You have to take it. And isn't that the most difficult thing? I've got door A and door B. Door A looks very enticing and intoxicating. Door B is the way of escape. There will always be a way of escape. The question is, will you take it? You know our biggest problem? When we're being tempted, we don't ask God to help us. We try to go it alone. We don't bring him into it, sometimes because we're embarrassed. Sometimes because we've failed so many times in this area, we say, God, I, I, I don't even want to deal with this or even cry out to you. I don't even know how to pray anymore. But when you ask God to help you, he is faithful. By the way, you're not hiding anything from him. He already knows. So you shouldn't say, God, can you look away? I'm in a terrible place. No, God knows where you are. Just say, Lord, help me. Do you see in your Bible where it says he will provide the way of escape? That is a definite article. That is the way of escape is always the same thing. And it's not always that he removes temptation because then he wouldn't say you'd be able to endure it. What is the way of escape? The way of escape is the same in every single temptation that you and I face. Jesus is my way of escape. He's my great high priest. He ever lives to intercede for me. He knows what I'm going through. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, Hebrews 2.18. And so if I cry out to him in my temptation, oh, Lord, everything in me wants to bite that forbidden fruit, wants to go that way, wants to go through that wrong door, but I know where that leads because I've been down that dead-end road a thousand times. And every time I think, oh, it'll be different this time. But every time I stand at the beginning of that road and I look to the end, I can see where it leads me to a dead-end sign, to, to guilt and feeling condemned even though you don't condemn me. And I don't want to go there again, so please provide another road, another way out. A man was sharing with his pastor, and he said, Pastor, I struggle so much with alcohol, and, and every day I don't want to drink, but I end up drinking. Pastor says, well, what do you do? Tell me about what happens when you go home. Well, I, I walk home from work, and every day I walk down this back alley, and I walk by this pub, and my friends are in there drinking. And I see my friends tipping back a couple of cold ones, and I think to myself, ah, I'll just have one or two. And, and so I end up going in, and instead of having one or two, I begin to abuse alcohol, and, and I've got a big problem. pastor says, okay, let's see. Every day you get off work, and you walk down this back alley, and you look into this pub, and your friends are there, and you just, you, you just walk through that door every single time. Okay, get ready. Fasten your seatbelt. Here's the advice of the day. Walk down a different street. <gasps> Ooh. Sometimes we realize we've met the enemy, and it is us, right? There's a way out. You just got to take it. Some of you and some who are listening to my voice right now may think, I am stuck in such a place where I feel that there's no way out. Do you know that people who commit suicide, people who are in such destructive addictions, 
sometimes get to the point where they think there is no way out of this. There's no way that I can beat this. There's no way I can overcome it. And friends, please hear me. That's a lie. There is a way out. Jesus is the way. And if you call upon his name, he'll save you, restore you. If you're a Christian, every time you need him, he'll be faithful. He won't necessarily remove the temptation, but he'll give you his power and provision. Father, we're coming to the table of the Lord. Thank you for the patience of your people as we move through a very uh, important text, but one that has so much to say. I pray that you are honored by our time together. <clears throat> we're coming to your table to remember the provisions of Christ's pierced body and shed blood. And I pray that as we come, you will bring restoration, hope, provision, a way of escape to those who may be really at the end. Some people come in here and they are broken and desperate and they, they don't even know what to do and you are the answer. Would you bow your heart with me, friend? And if you have not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have been stuck in a cycle of sin or maybe you're a Christian but you feel like you've been losing. He is the way. He's the way of escape. He'll give you what you need to endure to persevere, and even to have victory, to be able to dig down deep in the race and finish strong even when you thought you couldn't. He'll give you everything you need. Would you cry out to him? Would you pray, no matter who you are, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or five months, Jesus, you are the way. Give me your divine resources, Lord. I want to honor you in my life. I want to come to your table with a clean heart and pure hands. I want to follow you. Please help me to continue to find my strength and my hope in you. If you've not met Jesus, just ask him to save you. Be my Lord, be my Savior. Be my great high priest. I believe you died on the cross, prayed if it's you. I believe you rose from the dead. Ask him to save you. If you need to be saved from a situation right now that you're in, a difficulty, a temptation, an addiction, what seems to be a dead-end street and no way out, call upon him. He's faithful. He can part seas that look like they're dead ends. He can make a way when there seems to be no way. He's the God of miracles. And Father, as we come to your table, may you bless your people with strength for today and hope for tomorrow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.